Welcome to another episode of What If, where we consider how the present might be different if one tiny detail from the past were altered. In today's episode, it was Sunday, October 30th, 1938, and Orson Welles induced a panic with his radio drama based on the H.G. Wells classic novel, War of the Worlds. But what if one tiny detail were changed? What if instead of fiction, this had been a real Martian invasion? What would the Colin McEnroe show of today be like? Welcome to another episode of the Colin McEnroe Show. Colin is still being held in a Martian prison, and my guest, as always, is a Martian official. The same Martian I've been interviewing every day for the past nine years. You know, I still don't even know your name. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I'm a stinking, wrecking Earth pig dog, and you can barely stand to look at me. And I have no purpose other than to serve my overlords from the great red planet. Today, I thought we might take a trip back in time. When you first came here in 1938, Earth people feared that you were here to destroy us. <laughs> right, but I don't think anyone guessed that your plan was to keep us alive and use suction cups to slowly drain the life force out of us. You say it's better than our unfair capitalist system, which produced winners and losers. This way, everybody loses. Except you guys. Was that laughing? Were you laughing at me, you sick I don't think you can even comprehend the tedium of my life. The show is essentially the same every day. Why can't we have any other guests besides you? Why can't we consider some interesting topics? Well, we could do a show about... I don't know, what if instead of being a reproductive slave hooked up to a pitiless machine that maximizes the output of his gonads, Bill Buckner had played our old game of baseball? And, and what if, I don't know, life under Martian occupation has completely destroyed my capacity to dream or imagine? It's what we miss most, really. Our ability to dream about unrealized possibilities. That was our most precious asset. And most of us didn't even know it. Yeah, no, I know. I'm a putrid, rotting corpse plant, oozing fecal mucus. As if you hadn't said that a million times. Okay, I will. But first, I have to say the name of the man whose show this is. A man who, in a weak moment, attempted to collaborate and collude with you tentacled fascists, but now rots in one of your unnumbered cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colin McEnroe. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, that's what if one tiny thing were different. If, if Orson Welles is a classic podcast rather than a podcast a broadcast uh, had been real. You know, rather than being uh, an adaptation. First of all, the other what if might be, what if everybody was named Wells? Because it was Orson Wells adopting H.G. Wells. My middle name is Wells. But that's not it. No, what if the Martians really had invaded? And it, it turns out what would happen, the worst thing that would happen would be that their pitiless occupation of our lives would deprive of us, deprive us of our ability to dream and imagine, which is really what this show today is about, dreaming and imagining. Uh, the focus of it is both a podcast and a book uh, upon further review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history. And uh, joining us right now, we'll have uh, several guests along the way, including Will Leach, who's been with us uh, many other times. 
But joining us right now, one of our favorite people, uh, is the czar uh, of whatifery. Uh, I just gave him that title. Uh, and he, of course, is Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, uh, master of many trades. Uh, but this, the book and the podcast, uh, are his two latest projects. Mike Pesca, welcome back to our airwaves. Thanks for having me. What if we hypothetical alism? <laughs> you go. We need we need some nouns here. Um, I, just, I just have this uh, uh, thought of some like uh, very mean New York Post headline review. What if we whiffs? Oh no, they they would never say that about you though. <laughs> um, so it's th- this is um, maybe the best way to get in here is to, to to take an example from the book, and, and um, in some ways the the perfect example from the book is one that actually does require a little bit of explaining. It's the one about tug-of-war and the Olympics. Uh, and, and the first thing that we have to establish is the truth of that premise, right? Not everybody knows. Right. So tug-of-war was an Olympic sport up until 1920. It was uh, The United States was pretty good, of course. Lots of times there were six countries competing, and the United States always sent a team. So we won the second most medals in tug-of-war. We did, I'd say, about my forefathers before my actual forefathers might have even been in this country. But then it was dropped from the Olympics. And so I called Nate DeMeo, who does the Memory Palace podcast, because I'll tell you, I, had a, I knew a secret about Nate. And I said, what, what if would you like, before the iffery part of what iffery was out of my mouth, he said, tug-of-war in the Olympics. And I said, go, Nate, go. And the reason I knew he'd be good at this is because he wrote that book about Pawnee, the Parks and Rec book that was written from the voice of Leslie Nope. He actually wrote that. So he's excellent in constructing, you know, fake realities. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote his chapter as someone looking back at the history of tug of war. And of course, post-1920, that history is entirely invented. Right. And, and so, I mean, uh, in a way, people, you, you're many contributors to this book, many of whom are very distinguished uh, writers, uh, and you're contributors to the podcast as well. They decided to interpret this assignment in, in different ways. But he's one of the ones who really did kind of what? He produced a document that could only exist in its form if, in fact, the fabric of sports history had been altered. Yes. And this is great. There, in the beginning of the book, I lay out a few, I guess, rules or the structure that I imposed on the what if, because I always find that sports fans engage in what ifs, but they're really engaging in what abouts, you know, ruining the decision their team made. But what I, one of the things I really wanted to embrace was the what if that leads to just fantastic and comic and thought-provoking ripples. So if there were tug-of-war, what would be the geopolitical implications, uh, what sports figures might not have played their sport but instead have gone into the tug. And then Nate takes it to places where I don't even, I wouldn't even dare because he figures that tug-of-war would be so popular that there were many movies based on tug-of-war, including Jesse and Glenn, where uh, Jesse Owens and his team in the Hitler Olympics famously dropped the rope, thus embarrassing the Germans. And of course, uh, he, he has Crystal Gale winning a Grammy for the love theme from Tug of Their Lives about that famous team. And he even lays out who wins the EGOT for just tug of war uh, <laughs> materials. It's, 
kind of an insane uh, flight of fancy, shall we say. So there is a kind of chaos theory in this and some of the other pieces, right? I mean, this winds up with uh, with uh, O.J. Simpson uh, as vice president of the United States somehow, right? Because yeah. once you change one thing, we all know from Star Trek, you, if you change one thing, all, of, all kinds of other things may change. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of weird because most of my chapters had O.J. Simpson becoming vice president. I had to cut it out of all the other ones. <laughs> what if Wayne Gretzky hadn't been an oiler? Somehow O.J. Simpson becomes vice president. <laughs> really, it was O.J. Simpson's destiny to become vice president, and certain things apparently got in the way yeah, of that. I yeah. think that's we're living in that one reality where he didn't. <laughs> it's so odd. Everywhere, everywhere else in the multiverse, um, <laughs> that's right. He's a heartbeat away from the presidency, and which should make the president very nervous. Right. Um, and the book, if I did it, was chair a commission on reconsidering uh, appropriations. <laughs> so um, I, I have to ask, what? Uh, how did this? What, where was the germ of this idea? Where Where did it come from? So I was, as you know, as you heard on this on this radio station, I was an NPR sports correspondent for seven years, and I, w- I went to seven Super Bowls and I think six World Series and many a Final Four, World Cup, etc. Always a winner, always a champion, mostly with confetti. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going into the winner's locker rooms or clubhouse and having the sting of champagne in my eyes. But at some point, I said to myself those words. I said, what if, in thinking about my team, because you could see the Patriots win so often and you could see the uh, San Francisco Giants win a couple of times, all these teams, UConn winning. And I'm a Mets fan and a Jets fan. And I could have been a Yankees fan and a Giants fan, but I happen to be a Mets fan and a Jets fan because that was, that's how I was raised, and that's how, for some reason, I'm raising my sons. And I think I calculated because of that, I've been denied 11 championships, and I really only got to experience one championship, which was the 86 Mets. So I did say, what if? But then I didn't want to revel in the, like I said, if only, and I began to think that the best way to collect stories of what ifs are to apply some rules and what makes a good what if sports story in my estimation were things like it needs to either settle a debate or the intellectual rigor needs to be um, very on point or it needs to be a history lesson in the guise of a what if or it just needs to be flat out funny and we have examples of all of those in the 31 essays and and a couple examples in the Malcolm Gladwell intro. Right. And so I think we have to make that point that for somebody who is not familiar with this, it might simply seem it might seem as simple as and and by the way, every sports fan, I think, has some kind of fantasy as a Packers fan. I have this idea that I'm going to go back in time somehow or other and get them to not draft Tony Mandarich, you know, who's this steroidally pumped up, artificially inflated, um, very, very high draft choice uh, on the offensive line when they could have had Derek Thomas or Barry Sanders. I'm going to fix this somehow. I'm going to show up in, in the general manager's office and explain this to them, and they're going to do the right thing, and, and life is going to be so much better. Like Every sports fan has some version of that, but th- right. these essays are not entirely like that. And, and in many instances, in the final segment of today's show, we're going to well, highlight one in particular, where the essay really is intended not to show how things could have been, but how things are. Yes, and... M- for the most part, when I bring this up to people uh, who are excited, who are sports fans, their eyes will light up and they'll usually say something like, what if Michael Jordan were taken first by the Portland Trail Blazers? And I will say that is a totally legitimate thing to think about as a sports fan, but I couldn't escape the answer of, 
well, then the Portland Trailblazers would have been great because they had Michael Jordan. Right. And they were pretty good without Michael Jordan with, you know, having blown their pick essentially on Sam Bowie. But with Michael Jordan, of course they would have been good. Where's the chapter? Uh, you, you just could superimpose or Photoshop a Blazers jersey on Jordan. That's a cute visual. But, you know, where does it go from there? Where are the ripples? So almost all of the chapters are not about that one missed play, but they're more about, I don't know, society or humor or history. So we have a blimp full of money exploding over World Track headquarters by Paul Snyder, and that's uh, an exercise in somehow let's have a conceit where we put track and field at the center of American sport because it could have happened and how things would be different. Or we have a faux memoir by Stefan Fatsis, what if Bucky Dent hadn't homered over the Green Monster in 78. So the short answer is, well, the Red Sox win then. But it's his execution and his idea of what the ripples would be. For instance, Goodwill Hunting is not about an MIT math guy. It's about a guy who works at the Hunts Point Market in the Bronx. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's a whole category of literature. We did an entire show about it a while ago called Speculative Fiction, which turns out to be you know, basically 400 novels and short stories about what would happen if the other side had won World War II, 85 books uh, and and short stories about what would happen if the Civil War had come out differently, and like yeah. four, four other things. I don't know what the other four things are what if, about. What if the Canadians had succeeded in burning down the White House in 1812? <laughs> right, something like that. So, <laughs> so, and that's a different thing. You know, there's a way in which sports kind of screams out for this kind of tinkering and dabbling, but, but what is it about sports that makes it, is it just that it's kind of a safe place to experiment it is yeah it's a petri dish it's a place for experimentation i thrilled to the fact that we could do some experimenting that would reverberate beyond sports but at the very least it is an exercise in pointing out that even though history did happen that way that doesn't mean it was inevitable and my chapter or my introduction starts with George Washington and the Battle of Brooklyn and escaping because of the fog. And I read up a lot about it, and it's not just a rhetorical point to make. Most historians do agree that if not for the atmosphere, if not for the fog at the time, the colonials would have been decimated and history might have been entirely different. So I wanted to make the point that just because history unfolded that way doesn't mean that it definitely would have. But then, in a lot of the essays, um, we do have... We, I, I also wanted to have the sort of essay where what if something drastically different had happened that the actual world events wind up asserting themselves. So in our What If Billy Jean King Had Lost to Bobby Riggs essay, um, I don't want to give too much away, but the author, uh, Wayne Coffey, asserts, guess what, she would have come back to win because there was no keeping Billie Jean King down. And it's well-reported, and it's a history lesson. But I think that that is an apt conclusion. So just because um, history wasn't ine- isn't inevitable doesn't mean that uh, everything, one ripple would have changed everything. And I think about the election, and I think about the word overdetermined, and I think about we'd like to play what-ifs with either Comey or visiting the upper Midwest, or I just had James Clapper on the show, Russian interference, and everyone said, you change one of those variables, you change the whole election. Yes, but I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true. It seems to be that, you know, there are many instances in history which happened because, not that they were preordained, but there were real strong reasons for them to happen. 
Um, we're talking to Mike, Mike Pesca, uh, the book and the podcast. It's a book and a podcast and a breath mint. It's called, upon further review, The Greatest What Ifs in, in Sports History. Listening to the podcast, I find myself thinking that I, I need to write a what if essay called What If Robert Siegel Really Retired? Uh, because Robert Siegel is everywhere. <laughs> he's hosting on point today and he's doing your podcast. He has a, he he narrates a, a pretty terrific one speaking of Brooklyn. Um he, he ta- it's the story of what would happen if the Brooklyn Dodgers had not migrated to the West Coast. Right. And, and once again it like a lot of other sort of centers of gravity then tip because of that. You've always wanted to hear Robert Siegel quote Biggie Smalls and this is the chance <laughs> to do it. I say that he spent 30, maybe 40 years building up his credibility, and then in one fell swoop, he sullies it by engaging in this act of fiction and chicanery. And in fact, it was so good that uh, Mayor de Blasio either heard it or read a write-up of it and said, NPR has come out with this new podcast. No, it's only in the style of NPR. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I guess it worked. Um, so it's, uh, of course, June. It's the time when really always people are talking about football. Now, that doesn't seem right, but we are talking about football. Obviously, the White House has uh, decided uh, that we will. Um, and there are a number of football essays here, including one written by a, a football player, uh, uh, Nate Jackson. Uh, tell us about that essay. That's a little different from all the other essays in the book because most of the essays looked at something that happened and changed it. And I, in a way, this does, but that essay is what if football were invented today. It has echoes of a Jason Gay essay, which is what if football were deemed too boring in 1899, but Jason Gay just sort of wishes football out of existence and chronicles the uh, deep impact on the foam finger industry without any football. What Nate does is he says we know what we know about, about brain injuries, but we also know what we know about exciting athleticism. And look at the athletes in basketball and look at these multidimensional players like Tatum or Giannis or Porzingis, these Swiss Army Knife players. There are fantastic athletes in football. Why is it that, they're, that it's so structured and, you know, there's a, an offensive lineman is not a quarterback, is not a wide receiver? So he kind of tinkers with football. Um, he keeps four downs, and he keeps six points for a touchdown, and he keeps the timing in the quarters and 100 yards and all that. But what he really attacks is the idea of the pocket, and he thinks that creating this, uh, the, these five obese men who uh, protect this one relatively unathletic man, I mean, not that Tom Brady or Peyton Manning aren't an athlete, but compared to everyone else on the field, they are the worst athlete. And he says, let's reinvent football as more of an open sport with less head injuries, with less punting, with less stop and start, so therefore fewer grievous injuries, with less obesity. A little bit of a cliche, but I do think it's a fine, fine thought exercise. Um, I should say uh, the, in the collection upon further review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History, compiled, edited, uh, curated by Mike Pesca, a host of Slate Podcast, The Gist. My two submissions, uh, what if uh, the first major star of Ultimate Frisbee had been Odd Job from the James Bond movies, uh-huh. uh, and what if Bill Raftery were a woman? Uh, they were not accepted. They were not even uh, acknowledged as submissions. Uh, I'm a little troubled by that. Uh, okay. If Bill Raftery were a woman, his catchphrase <laughs> would not be onions, it would be omelet. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, can I just say that about I've been I've wanted to say this for a while. You know, here in 2018 and we've got the Me Too movement and we've got all kinds of things like this and change sensibilities. I think it's time for Bill Raftery to stop talking about the onions of young men who play, play college basketball. I mean, their onions are really none of his business. He is. I, I love Bill Raftery. <laughs> and we all love Bill Raftery. But maybe you're right. 
maybe you're right. Maybe we just have to assign him some NBA games and his creativity, WNBA games, and his creativity will peak through. Right. I just, uh, it's, you know, that that particular expression had its time. It was, mm-hmm. it was an appropriate moment for it. So one of uh, America's most distinguished and beloved sports writers is Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, no, but he is in this book. And, and he, he, the actor Jesse Eisenberg, I happened to, for very weird reasons, like the Phoenix Suns. So I was quite excited to see that <laughs> there was going to be something that would redirect the destiny of the Phoenix Suns, besides the fact that they'll probably draft DeAndre Ayton in a few weeks. But, um, but I didn't really get what I wanted, but it was very funny. Maybe you want to just sort of tease the Eisenberg thing a little bit without wrecking it too much. Yeah, well, one tease is the cover of the book, which has Charles Barkley in a Suns uniform holding the NBA, the Larry O'Brien Trophy. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, we debated who would be the best person to hold, to Photoshop into either the uh, Larry O'Brien Trophy or the Vince Lombardi Trophy. And it was either Dan Marino uh, holding the NFL Trophy, which he never did, or Patrick Ewing or Charles Barkley holding the O'Brien. And we said it had to be Barkley just because I guess there was a very similar shot of him holding the uh, MVP for the All-Star Game. That said, Jesse does an essay where he remembers himself as a 12-year-old having written a fan letter to Dan Marley because he idolized Dan Marley and what 12-year-old wouldn't at the time. And, and for NPR team. listeners, we have to say that Dan, that, that, uh, Dan Marley was, you know, sort of a above-average white Phoenix Suns basketball player who played very hard-nosed defense and averaged about 13.9 points a game. Uh, uh, I just, just I, I don't know, somehow or other we have to put Dan Marley in the minds of people for whom he yeah. may remain an abstraction. I sometimes forget that not everyone knows Dan Marley, just like, just like not everyone knew in uh, something about Mary that Brett Favre's name was not pronounced Favre. Right. You, the layman might say Dan Majerly. Who is this yes. guy? But he is Dan Marley. Jesse writes him a letter, and he feels that the letter changed history, distracted the Phoenix Suns in their locker room as they prepared for their finals showdown with the Chicago Bulls. Um, and then it, of course, changed Jesse himself. And the upshot, I thought the upshot of all this was how Jesse reckons with it on the page and in the podcast. And the podcast was produced by Jonathan Mitchell, who does a podcast called The Truth, which is excellent. It's, he's, he's, he's a virtuoso. He's fantastic. He took Jesse's words from the page, turned it into a script. We had actors act out the parts. And then the greatest thing happened. This, this podcast comes to the attention of the real Dan Marley, he absolves Jesse of his guilt, and on a Phoenix radio station, Jesse Eisenberg and Dan Marley have a summit where all is forgiven and they agree to meet someday. <laughs> right. There's a lot of that that goes on anyway. We have, we have to take a break here because Will Leach is ready to join us. But, I mean, last night uh, at Fenway Park, before, well before the crowd showed up, I believe, Kirk Gibson and Dennis Eckersley sat side-by-side side in the stands having a protracted conversation uh, about one of the most famous home runs in, in history, uh, which uh, Gibson was obviously eager to talk about and Eckersley was surprisingly willing to talk about. But that kind of thing, I mean, athletes kind of like that stuff, I think. I think. I mean, yes. certain kinds of athletes. Yes. Although I will say the Marley-Eisenberg meeting had far less facial hair than the one year. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to go bring back, uh, bring on a Will Leach, uh, and we're going to talk more about what if. What if things were different? What if things were different? What if things had changed? I mean, I'm a positive person, but I don't really know. What if things were different?
And we're back. I still haven't really mastered that picking up the cue thing. You know, it's too dark in the room where you're holding your fingers up. I can't even see them. All right. So uh, joining us now, well, we have Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and author, uh, curator, compiler, uh, everything of Upon Further Review, the greatest what ifs in sports history. Joining us is one of the contributors to said book and podcast, Will Leach, a national correspondent for Major League Baseball, contributing editor at New York Magazine, and the host of Sports Illustrated's The Will Leach Show. His piece, Upon Further Review, is what if baseball teams play only played once a week? Will's been with us uh, lots of other times, but uh, Pesca and Leach at the same time. We're really approaching some kind of singularity here of, uh, of I don't know what exactly. I don't know what might happen, but the, 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 the gravity might really, really contract. Uh, so get ready. Uh, Will, welcome back to our airwaves and say hello to your friend Mike. It is an honor. I'd like to take this opportunity to haggle with Mike over uh, some rights issues. I think we said this is probably the right time to do it. Right. We'll, we'll, we, we, you just give us a second. If you, okay, fine. We'll talk about the book. Right. Yeah. You, I think you're getting 10% of the plush toys. So uh, I'm just asking myself, what if he were kidding? <laughs> so, um, Will, I, I would count your essay as one of the essays that, although it, it explores things being different, it's really a commentary on how things are. Uh, you speculate that, you know, maybe there's really too much baseball, that the problem with baseball is that just it just happens all the time during its season. Yeah, I don't know if I would argue that it's necessarily a problem as much as, you know, one of the things that's very frustrating for me as someone that is baseball first uh, is when people that are that are make the, the arguments of like, oh, well, football is our greatest sport because look at the television ratings. And I've always noted that, well, one of the reasons the baseball ratings are not so high is because baseball is not – it's not meant to be an event. Football, by definition, is built to be event programming. In baseball, it's you know it's it's like a it's it's like a river. You know, like you sometimes you you can you can go swim in it if you want. You can swim in it all day, or you can look at you can look at it from a bridge of afar. You can drive by it without ever even thinking about it. But it's always happening. And to me, I lo- that's one of the things I love about baseball. But it is frustrating for me when people will try to use what I would argue are um, uh, kind of shaky math arguments on, well, television ratings for football are so much better. Well, yeah, the reason is because football is played once a week. So I thought, what if we actually, what if at the beginning when baseball had started, baseball was actually just a once a week game? Because uh, obviously I think it would make the ratings go up because it would be more event-based, but how would it change the way the sport was played? So I thought that'd be kind of a fun way to, uh, to, to, to make uh, Mr. Pesca deal with my uh, dramatic, uh, dramatic grammatical mistakes and uh, all of my horrible uh, uh, vulgarities uh, to, in the book project. So, Mike, in reading Will's piece, one thing that I, I mean, I'm a big baseball fan and I enjoyed the baseball season, but I became aware of the fact that, yeah, you know, rather than being a game, as he suggests, it's kind of a context. Uh, and it's also, uh, because of the way that it's played, because of the 162 game schedule plus uh, po- postseason, it, it also, it's like Coronation Street, like one of those British soap operas that's been on the air for 175 years that, you know, you really can't just jump in that easily. There, there's a way in which if you want to tell some young friend of yours, hey, watch this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, anyway, yeah, I, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts. Um, well, first of all, I think the I think the Coronation Street analogy is good, and if I knew anything about Coronation Street, I would make an analogy or pivot off that to the Balk rule or the infield fly rule, because I'm sure there is some similarity. I, the river idea is also good. Now, what I did was I asked Will Leach, all right, take that river and redirect it. And we see how well that has gone in the Mississippi over the years, when man intervenes. So Will, uh, and by the way, if you want to talk about 
errors that were made again and again and again. I think I spelled Leach three different ways uh, in my original draft of the book. But Will writes about baseball and takes this conceit, and it really does. What is baseball? If, if I said, you know, define baseball, and I'll give you 500 words, you probably wouldn't write about the everyday nature. But if you change the everyday nature, you change baseball so much. You change what baseball means and how the positions are filled and the place it has in our imagination to such a degree, uh, I, 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 it's almost unimaginable. But it is imaginable, and Will imagined it. And so, so, Will, what are the things? Yeah, to Mike's point, you imagine that each team would have a starting pitcher, and then two lefties in the bullpen, two righties in the bullpen, and a closer, so that every time the Red Sox played, it would be Chris Sale versus CC Sabathia or whoever those two. Oh you know, God! Or or, or, oh, or, or maybe because of somebody else's essay, OJ Simpson would be a pitcher now. I don't know. <laughs> I really lost track. But Will, you talk a little bit more about how you think the game would would shape itself differently around this idea. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the primary way, right? It would basically turn the pitcher, the starting pitcher, into the quarterback. Like, certainly, every time you see an a NFL game broadcast, it's always, you know, it's always, you know, uh, uh, Tom Brady against Aaron Rodgers, Patriots versus Packers. But it's very rare you see that in... And basically, if you had the starting pitcher to do that, you'd, they'd become that person. They would become the most important part of every single game and the single selling point of that entire team. And so it would, I, I think what it would do is obviously it would make rosters smaller because you wouldn't need all those players. I also think it would increase the importance of sluggers because one run now means so much more. The, the same way that you know, if someone can go through a slump and, they, and you, can, you can bench them here, but like in it was just one game, because the idea is that you don't just play it weekly, but you actually average, I think, came out to 18 games to what the NFL season would be. So all of a sudden, one game, whereas Major League Baseball now, it's only one 162nd of a season. But if this were 116th of a game, like the NFL, every game would be based, you'd, you'd want that home run here. You'd just, you, you would, home runs would be of a much more important aspect because they're so hard to get you're facing the best pitcher every time. That would be a, a, a larger issue of it. I also looked at not just the gameplay aspect, but the way the game would be promoted and the way the game, would, I think, would be televised. Because so I think that that is the argument that people always make for the NFL. It's such a big event. We all come around. We all come out and, and tailgate all day and watch the game. Whereas baseball... Guys, there's like seven baseball games going on this exact second, and no one has noticed. That's what baseball is. Baseball is always happening in that way. So if you switch baseball into an event-based thing... It not only morphs the sport, it morphs how we even talk about the sport. Every game becomes this thunderous life-and-death thing. I feel like, I wonder if the game would become more inherently physical and maybe even more violent because they have six days to recover. It's not the grind the way the baseball is now. So it certainly, it's just strange to think that a sport is supposed to be self-contained. It's supposed to be its own thing. But simply by changing how often you play it, you change the game pretty dramatically. See, Mike, I think the, the, your next spinoff here is going to be sort of a, a Mike and the Mad Dog type call-in sports talk show where people call up and argue over, like, Will's premise and say, no, no, Gian's Carlos Stanton, he wouldn't be worth as much because he strikes out too much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then somehow we decide who's right and wrong. <laughs> but what Will is saying, think about it. Now think about he made the comparison to football. Think about if football were like baseball, and it's, instead of a quarterback, if there were, were a rotation. I mean, in baseball, there are guys, pitchers with an ERA in the high fours who aren't very good. But, you know, you only have to be one of the 120 best starting pitchers to be guaranteed a job. But with football, if you're the 38th best 
quarterback, or in the case of Colin Kaepernick, better than that, if you're the 48th best quarterback, you really don't have a job. So how we're defining the person who has the ball and does most of the action and who we're giving that responsibility to is totally different in the two sports and totally because of how often the sports are played. I think, Will, one of the uh, uh, observations that you made that I hadn't thought that much about is that baseball is, in many ways, the most physically demanding professional sport, not because it has the kinds of collisions or, or you know, high-speed sprints and stuff like that that you might see in, in football or basketball, but because it goes on for so long, because there's no relief. Yeah, particularly now. You know, I, mean, I think the, the days, I, I think it's worth noting that when you talk to old players in the 70s and talk to them about steroids, they say, oh, we would never use PEDs. We would never PEDs. Oh, but greenies? Oh, yeah, we needed those things. We play every day. There's like an afternoon game after a night game. And I think, you know, that is, I think, pretty telling about just to get up every single day and to perform like that. I think there's this idea people have that, like, well, baseball, they just work three hours of the day, a day. Yeah, if all only like the idea that the, the, the only time they're performing or the only time they're they're getting paid and doing their job during the three hours. I, I think that's clearly not the case. And you add in travel to that idea. Think about how different travel is in in, in an idea where there's a weekly game. You only have one travel a week. Now you see teams going back and forth. You saw this fight that the Yankees are having with ESPN is basically about this idea of a long travel after a night game for a day game. And I think that is. The travel, the grind, Barry Sprula for the Washington Post, who was the, the beat reporter for the Nationals, wrote a terrific book last year called The Grind. And it really is about the idea where he interviews everybody involved in baseball, from the players to the clubhouse attendants to the wives of the players, and just how much it takes out of you. Not so much at the end of every game you're like, whew, I ran so hard that game. I need a Gatorade or something. You shouldn't drink Gatorade. Just drink water. Um, but certainly that kind of uh, thing, it's not that kind of tired. It's the fact that you have to do it every day for six months out of the year and add travel. It just is a lot on these players. And I think you see with how rosters are constructed. You have to have 40-man rosters for a 25-man team, and they're constantly going up and down for the minors. That's all because they play every single day and how much it takes out of people. You know, um, obviously, Will, this book has really taken off. I think there's a copy in virtually every American home at this point. And I, I'm wondering, uh, first of all, whether you do need to neg- renegotiate your, your cut of it. But also, um, I'm also wondering, sports fans are kind of notoriously bad at distinguishing a fanciful concept from a serious concept. Have you run into people already who, who like, are almost enraged that you would entertain such an, uh, an idea as cutting the season down to 26 games from 162? Yeah, one of the people that is enraged by this idea is me. I would hate it if the baseball were like this. this I actually end the essay, uh, spoiler alert, by actually end the essay with the idea like, wow, this would be absolutely terrible and represent everything I didn't like about baseball, which is actually kind of the point, right? As someone that defends baseball against football, I would argue a lot of football's inherent advantages in the American marketplace are not because it's a better game or a more fair game, certainly not because it's a safer game, but just because the way that we kind of artificially inflate events and spectacle happens to benefit this game that I would argue is inferior uh, that there's an inferior game to this game that we actually play all the time there's an old joke about 
the idea that if you give someone something for free, they will not value it. But if they charge $50 for it, you will, they will realize how much important it is to them. Baseball happens all the time. And because of that, you get used to it and you don't value it as much. I would argue that uh, it would be kind of ironic that taking away uh, hundreds of baseball games a week would actually make people appreciate baseball more, I think, in the short term. But I, I like watching baseball games, so I wouldn't want to have this happen at all. Yeah, Mike, as I was reading Will's piece, I was sort of thinking, yeah, it's sort sort of why you can't really kind of kind of do da 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 tonight one one hundred and sixty second of something that provides a lot of context to people's lives for the warmer months of the year. Yeah, I wanted to note that Will, who loves the pace of baseball. I signed him the baseball essay, and he concludes it by saying, I'm glad it's not like what I portray. And Paul, who wrote my blimp full of money and the world track essay, says, I kind of like track being this little obscure thought. But one of the great joys of this was so I would talk to my competitors. Competitors, hello. I would talk to my contributors. I've got sports on the mind. And some alchemy would occur. And as Will was saying this, I just had this idea, this theory, so baseball was America's game in the 70s and 80s, and now, now football's America's game. Yeah, our drug of choice in the 70s and 80s was a stimulant, right? That was like greenies in baseball and cocaine in the 80s. Now our drug of choice as a nation is an opiate, which is a painkiller, which is uh, analogous to the, to the drug of choice in the NFL. I don't know. If sports is a, a drug or a distraction for the masses, it strikes me as notable that the sports we like somehow mirror the drugs we like as a country. Well, Will Leach, it was just a dream you had, okay? <laughs> Everything's okay. Go back to sleep. Uh, there's still 162 games of the season. Giancarlo Stanton is not an oral surgeon. He is still a baseball player. Uh, everything's uh, just great. But, Will, thanks for being with us. Yes, Bobby Ewing is in the shower over here, so everything is totally fine. Thanks for having me. All right. Actually, it's not fine if Bobby Ewing is in your shower. We have to take it's a break. <laughs> Come back after this. What if dolphins took over public radio? The credits would sound like this. Amanda Fish would get eaten. The part of Bill Curry would be played by... Really? Him? I've seen his work, and I doubt he has the dramatic range. Also, terrible herring breath. And now... That's how they say my name. I hate it. I hate the way they say my name. All right. Our final um, conversation today is going to be about, I, I think, maybe my favorite essay uh, in this book. And before we even introduce the guest uh, and writer who goes along with it, uh, well, I'm going to sort of um, remind you of what things were like in 1999. So these players played a full 90, most of them, then another 30. So you're looking at 120 minutes in intense heat and pressure. And now, the biggest pressure of their lives for most of these women, maybe all, their most important penalty kicks ever. As Brandy Chastain strode to the penalty box, it was as if the whole country was holding its breath. I'm not sure of the word, but it was just such a heavy moment. Look at the faces. And the feeling was, I think, you know, the future of women's soccer depends on 
the outcome of this game. Chastain will take it. Chastain set down the ball. And as I put the ball down and I looked up, there was the goalkeeper standing in front of me and kind of like two boxers in the middle of the ring. She literally psyched me out. She totally gave me like a smile and a wink. And I was like, that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened. Then she started her run. And even though I hit the ball well, it hit the crossbar and went out. China made their next kick and then eventually pulled ahead in points. Suddenly, the game was over. The crowd sat stunned in their seats. Yeah, you want to know what it sounded like? Yeah. You ready? Yep. Listen, listen. That's what it sounded like. It's amazing how quiet 90,000 plus people could be. Okay, that obviously is not how things were in 1999. Uh, that is our guest, Louisa Thomas, a New Yorker.com contributor, a former writer and editor for Grantland, and the author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Uh, she wrote a piece uh, in Upon Further Review uh, with Mike Pesca. Uh, she didn't write it with Mike Pesca, but Mike Pesca is here with us right now is what I'm trying to convey, called What If the 1999 U.S. Women's National Soccer Team Had Lost the Women's World Cup? You're just hearing a clip from the fourth episode of the Upon Further the review podcast where Louisa and the actual Brandy Chastain play out this idea. First of all, Louisa Thomas, thanks so, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to say uh, for people who don't like spoilers, um, it's hard to do spoilers in a what if, <laughs> a speculative <laughs> nonfiction thing. But this piece is different from the others in the sense that it has what you might call a turn. And I don't know how we could possibly discuss it without kind of referring a little bit to that turn. So I don't know what you, you do with that information, but I just don't want you screaming at me later that I wrecked it for you. Um, <laughs> so um, first of all, I guess the first question I want to ask Louisa is um, – uh, you or somebody recruited Brandy Chastain to, to play out this scenario in the opposite way from, from how it happened. How open was she to that idea? Well, um, actually, we did a little fudging. If you if you listen to the rest of the podcast, we actually reveal that she was talking about a different moment. Ah. In that time. And, we, uh, and we replay that, you know, <laughs> replay that moment. She was actually talking about um, she had missed a penalty kick against the Chinese goaltender goalkeeper in a previous tournament um, in the run-up to the World Cup. So we all... And she was describing that moment. So we, we all remember the real moment, and, and she, she drops to her knees, and uh, as you write uh, in your piece, and, and she as she's seen, seen male uh, soccer players do, uh, tears off uh, her, her top jersey and uh, raises her arms high uh, in her sports bra. And it becomes... I, I hadn't known this until I read your piece, but it's... it's uh, in its presence among iconic sports uh, photographs, this is what? I mean, give us kind of a sense of, of, of how big an image this really is. Um, I believe that Sports Illustrated conducted some kind of poll about, you know, its most famous iconic covers, and this came in second after the Miracle on Ice photo. So uh, that's pretty high up there. Right. I just want to say, first of all, this whole moment uh, changed my life um, in, in a way because uh, about a year later, I was in a pickup soccer game, mainly with a bunch of kids, and I was trying to illustrate my mastery of the Mia Ham <laughs> cutback. Uh, and, and you know how when you're doing that, Mike, you yell out the name of the person that you're printing. You're like, you know, LeBron James, you know, as you do this thing. So I yelled Mia Ham as I did this cutback, and I completely severed the tendon which connects <laughs> oh, my quadriceps to my kneecap. Ooh, uh, that's a bad one. Yeah, it's a really that bad is, one. That is because. You mocked the goddess 
Right. <laughs> she was offended. Right, right. Yes. I aspired to be so much more than I really was, a little worm that I actually was in life. Uh, so anyway, I, I want to say that in 1999 changed a lot of things for me. But um, Louisa, your piece is terrific. And first of all, you, you talk about first what would be different if, if the Chastain goal hadn't happened. So I, I'll just drop a few of those on us. Oh, oh yeah, yes, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Just sort of, yeah, just mention, mention a few of the things um, that would be different. Well, you know, there would be professional um, soccer leagues that failed. Um, the amount of coverage on the women's sports, which should seem to be kind of right on the cusp of becoming um, a real kind of mainstay in daily life, um, would have fallen off. Um, women would be covered in less exciting ways than men's sports. Um, and there would be a, a kind of ongoing struggle um, for respect and, and equality um, in the larger public consciousness. Right. So this is the, the so-called turn in your piece, right? That, is, in fact, is the way things are, that the kind of dramatic yeah. changes, <laughs> the dramatic changes that might have been expected to attend something as, as watched and, and uh, iconographically uh, uh, idolized as this incredible moment ultimately didn't seem to have the kind of world-changing uh, effect. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Louisa, about sort of how you, how you process that? Sure. I mean, when I began this essay, I, I didn't ex- expect um, that this is the way it was going to go. Um, in my head, when I said that I would do this, I sort of imagined um, what I think most people imagine, which is that I was going to, um, you know, do some research and realize that it was this kind of huge turning point in the history of women's sports, um, because I think that's how we generally talk about it. Um, but the more kind of, the more I read and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that progress is is slow and halting and the dynamic is not you know it's not it things don't things don't always seem to be getting better in the way that we expect that they should and and did um but at the same time i don't think that that means that it didn't have an impact i didn't mean to say it at all um but it wasn't you know quite the um huge you know flipping point that I think I had expected going into this project. Right. I, I tried to write my own version of this particular essay four or five times, and it just kept ending with Michelle Akers and I said, settling down together. I couldn't really get much further than that in my own imagination. But um, I, I do want to say, Louisa, that in a way, I, I live, I sit right now in kind of a third part of the multiverse where, in fact, things are different. It's a magical land called Connecticut. It's called Yukon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here, here, everything is as one might have hoped. I mean, women's yes. sports are talked about uh, absolutely on a par, if not uh, one rung above uh, men's sports, and, and are talked about with great animation. It's just the other forty-nine states, right? You know, it's funny because you know, you, whenever you write something, you always worry that you're sort of overstating the case. You know, maybe like actually things are things are totally great, and then we posted a link to this podcast and. Tons of these comments have been like, oh, women's sports sucks. Who cares? <laughs> and you're like, well, okay. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, there is a way in which uh, things can be better. I don't know, Mike, how, how does the piece sit for you within this collection? It really is kind of the one, it really does have this terrific little surprise turn in it, right? Yeah. Well, especially since the original conceit was, what if when Brandy Chastain ripped off her shirt, she had a Ben Affleck-like 
back tattoo. <laughs> that that wouldn't have been as good. Um, it's it's fantastic, and working with Louisa was fantastic, and getting her to do episode four of the Upon Further Review podcast was so good. And to illustrate that, after so I, we worked on the piece, the print piece, and then we worked on the podcast, and then I listened to the podcast. And I said, I have to do sort of a post-podcast Q&A with Louisa just about this idea of progress. And, you know, in our Q&A, I essentially asked, is it bad if we have this idea that that was the moment when everything changed, when that is not how history worked? What are the consequences of holding on to a myth of the, the tipping point moment from which we never go back from? And since Louisa is a historian as well as uh, a sports writer, she gave great insight and context as to that. Well, we have to stop there. But first of all, we have barely scratched the surface of this book and the podcast series, too, uh, upon further review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History uh, by Mike Pesca. So great also to have Louisa Thomas uh, here with us for the final segment. Uh, since the Dolphins didn't really do a very good job, I'm not talking about uh, Dan Marino anymore, but the actual uh, Dolphins, uh, I should say that Jonathan McPants is the person who produced this podcast, uh, and Kyone Wolf has been on the board uh, today, and lots of other people, I'm sure, have helped us as well. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. You're kind of